it all just kind of fell into place and and we know the result went our way but uh there were some days where i'd, I'd leave here pinching myself am i really a part of this and there were some days where i felt like i was meant to be here at this time um it, it really felt like everything in my life was going to collide that week and um again the nervousness of if it doesn't go great but it went great, and uh, you know, I find myself at Davis Love's Hall of Fame induction ceremony a year later um, because it went the way that it did. So it, it was a dream. It was an absolute dream. In 1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the Company of Gentlemen Golfers Who Played of Leaf, now called the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers Who Play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honor, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leaf Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. All right, Colin, we are back with another Silver Club podcast. How's it going? Beautiful. All good here in Connecticut. Southern New England, October, early autumn. One day after another is a blissful golf day. Blissful. Now, that was uh, How blissful did the, the fall season finish up for the Yale Bulldogs? <laughs> um, it wasn't as good as we had hoped but we we did go eight and two against the conference we beat everybody in our we beat the other seven schools at, at least once um we i think i spoke to you obviously when we were in old town we had an okay tournament not as not as good as last year still uh love that course even more um had a beautiful weekend for the mcdonald cup at yale uh mike use from brown who's a tough critic he's you know, he doesn't give out compliments easily. He said on the Friday night of the after the practice round, that's the best he's ever seen the Yale course look. So I definitely want to give a shout out there. And nice uh, boys played, boys played okay. Minnesota ran away with it. By the way, Angus Flanagan, who I think should be getting some Walker Cup look for the next cycle. He's an English golfer. Angus, that's, that's a great name. That's a that's I definitely know. a. Uh... Uh, an overseas name. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I actually, he's uh, he hasn't. He's got a Scottish first name. His he's got an Irish last name, and he's he lives in England. So he's he's kind of like this cool uh, hybrid. But he he's playing great golf. He won our tournament. The, the go the Gophers uh, won as a team, and then we finished uh, the last the fifth and final tournament was at Maidstone. The, the club like Old Town out of has just very recently opened themselves up to a college tournament. Uh, this is the first year they had it. Next year, it's going to have a stacked field. But the golf course, anyone who thinks that Maidstone is a pushover because it used to be the kind of short little, it used to be closer to Country Club of Fairfield in terms of like, it was in that category of sub 6,500 yard courses. Well, um, it's now about 6,700 yards and there's tight mow everywhere. And you play it in October when there was a good 20 mile an hour wind up and it was closer to the massacre at Maidstone. <laughs> that sounds like the real deal there. You, you are not, no one is playing Maidstone these days and, and leaving the property thing and they were shortchanged, uh, you know, a challenge. Oh my God. I've always loved that place. And I always used to rank it extremely highly on my sort of personal kind of charm, you know, index. It's, I used to sort of 
kind of associated a little bit more with the Somerset Hills of the world and myopia when in fact, like, oh my God, it's the guys played Shinnick. They played national the day before the practice round. And then on during the practice round in Maidstone, they were like, oh my God, this course is significantly harder, which I was sort of shocked wow. to, but just it's, there's more, it's penal. There's more trouble. There's more hazard. Um, greens are smaller, fairways are narrower, there's out of bounds, but I have eternal uh, appreciation for uh, Maidstone. Well, it sounds like the boys at Yale, they, they struggle to play some great golf courses. I mean, you know, you sign up, <laughs> sign up to play for Colin Sheehan, you're going to play a pretty awesome venue. Speaking about awesome venues, we got uh, in our the Silver Club Golfing Society events, we Got to play Quaker Ridge uh, on the 2nd of October. Then a week later, we were at the Old Town Club in Winston-Salem, 1939. Perry Maxwell, redone by Corin Crenshaw six years ago. Spectacular. Um, we, had a, we had an epic day there. Perfect weather. Uh, it was just a, a very special time. Uh, getting prepped up for our last few events on the Silver Club. And uh, going to Ford Plantation near savannah and then flying out west to pasa tiempo for a one day out there so uh before our silver club championship at champions retreat so we've got uh we've got some great golf coming up ourselves before it gets a little too cold to do so but uh so so talking about you know as it gets cold how how does it how, how does your team work right now i mean is there much practice at all what do they do or are they just burying in, their heads in the books right now. Yeah, they we're in fall break right now. I think I may have mentioned it. They they have they they affectionately refer to sort of the midterm era time of the year when when the season's winding down. You know, they're just they, they're just sort of about classes. They they call them they they say they're getting dunked on. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they are running. They were running on fumes at Maidstone. We missed. Um, we had two Monday Tuesday tournaments this fall, which we almost never do, um, and just uh going pedal to the metal to start the year they were so they're done we're gonna they're gonna start working out they're gonna take advantage of these still beautiful days um but their sort of the intensity of their obligation as golfers is dialed way down all golf at this point is really for pleasure until the for another month three weeks yeah, and then it, yeah. and then we have this beautiful indoor facility i know it's it's you don't want to oversell an indoor facility to anybody because <laughs> I don't think in Gainesville, I don't think in Gainesville they're selling their indoor facility as a, a recruiting advantage. Yeah. University of Florida. I got to go down there recently and we had the 50th annual Gator golf day. Coach JC Deacon uh, was, uh, was a gracious host. We had an awesome time. Got to see some of the, uh, the Gators of the past. Uh, got to, Chat with my former coach, Buddy Alexander, the 1986 uh, Walker, or excuse me, uh, U.S. Amateur Champion, 1987 Walker Cup team member. Uh, he was an, he was a great coach to to learn from, and he just he always had a lot of uh, a lot of wonderful ways to to teach us to practice. That was really cool. Saw Billy Horschel there. Uh, Bob Murphy was there from the, the the Golden Air. Gary Coke. By the way, I mean I don't want to get too nerdy about if you're going to shout out us amateur wins for players you can't roll past bob murphy in 1965 <laughs> southern hills stroke play era 
amateur champion right there. That's keeping it pretty classic. Yeah, the the Florida Gators have had a they've had a tremendous squad. Uh, seems like every year, and uh, Coach J.C. Deacon, I believe he's in about his fourth season now as the coach, and he uh, he's a he's a Canadian. He's actually a great player in his own right. He played uh, in the Canadian Open this last year. He Monday qualified for it and uh, was the Florida state amateur champion back in 2018. So Florida Gators have a great guy at the helm and assistant coach Mark Leon's no, no slouch either. So, uh, but uh, yeah, really cool to get down there. Went to the Auburn, Florida game in the swamp there. The, the uh, Gators snuck one out by I think about 10, 10 points and just forgot how electric it was. Uh, before we go and get to our, our podcast today with Chandler Withington, the head professional at Hazeltine, I wanted to just, uh, you know, this is really the end of the golf season. And uh, there's a tradition in the Outpost Club that uh, has has rung through. How many years is this? 12, 13 years now? It's 13. It's the it's, granddaddy. Three dates the Outpost Club. So it's called the Punch Bowl. It It is fortunately played in your backyard at the Yale Golf Club. Why is the Punch Bowl event so special, Colin? Well, it was... It was uh conceived with will one year in 2007 we the yale the yale course looks um it's at its finest in the month of october golf is at its finest in the month of october in the northeast um it was created to sort of be a oh, sort of one last hurrah uh on the northeast kind of season in the calendar that sort of dovetails with when the course is looking fabulous so um, it's alternate shot, which is the most underrated at format in golf. Any Americans, <laughs> we, Americans can't play. We are, we, we cannot play enough alternate shot. People love it. And so we had 126 golfers. Um, the course is going to be fabulous. Um, play in eight sums and maybe even a play eight or, sum, right. or, four ball eight sums yeah, in the morning yeah. by the afternoon, five ball, 10 sums stable for points, double after lunch. And in some ways, it's a, it's a celebration of the ninth hole. So the 27th hole of the day, the last hole of the tournament is ninth hole. And we kind of modify shotgun the uh, groups on the front nine on the first eight holes. And we roughly time it so that everybody everybody in the field has to play nine in front of everybody else. So you have to hit a quality shot to, the, to a pin behind the swale with, um, with you know, a with with an impatient audience and if you don't hit a good shot you get booed and it's honestly that ha that 20 minutes half hour is the best half hour of any club event anywhere in golf trying to trying to hit that shot and um it's just such a fun thing to have it's there's so much enthusiasm for it i love seeing everyone who comes back um we have probably 30 caddies out there um it's it's looking like we're going to get a good day even though it's going to rain a few days prior um it's. I just love showing off the course when it's at its, when it's at a when it's just perfect shine. Yeah, it's 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 one of the greatest scenes in all of golf. That twenty seventh hole. I mean, you can picture kind of towards sunset, and you have the punch bowl there, and people. Uh, you know, they've had a few libations throughout the day, and there's about a hundred players that hit this one shot, and a lot of them flat out choke because they are. They're hitting really for the first time in front of this many people, and they are so nervous. And there's, yeah. there's no practice swing, so that's kind of keeps things moving. <laughs> if you take a practice swing, you get heckled and you get your ball kicked off the tee. 
And uh, it's just, it's one of the coolest scenes. It really, it's what lured me into being a part of the Outpost Club. And and uh, it's just the greatest scene. And the, the Golfer's Journal, and any of our listeners out there that get the Golfer's Journal, they uh, they did a really cool piece on it in their volume number eight uh, recently. So if anybody out there gets the Golfer's Journal, check that out. Uh, they did a really cool piece on this very event, the Punch Bowl. But yeah, Steve, you passed, by the way, you passed the audition. You came and visited us, kind of, a, it was a spec visit, just getting to know each other. You know, you're more famous than any of us. And But you came to you came and saw the Apples Club, and your only sort of real glimpse of it was the punch bowl. And, and you liked what you saw, which was, we were all, we were all thrilled. You could have easily, <laughs> you could have easily have been like, these people are crazy. I'm out of here. <laughs> it, it was, it was your non-traditional country club sort of event it was just it, it's raw golf and just classic golf at its finest on on one of the, the most iconic holes in golf it's a beer ritz hole the ninth hole at yale 215 yard shot to that back pin and and uh, the people just flat out they flat out choke <laughs> and it's right and, right and it's, it's so very important the reason so the, the very important it's, it's very important to mention that um we modified a rule years ago we, it's alternate shot all day long until the until the last hole. And I think one year we were like, we thought we would, you know, only half the people would hit, and then everyone was like, I got to hit the shot. So we, it's the only hole where both both players in the team tee off, and it comes with the kill shot. That's the other thing I love is no matter where you are in the standing, an ace is a walk off, a walk off win. So it's kind of it's kind of exciting because. It's not just a formality that people get on the tee and they're just hitting and they're you know down down the field in the middle of the pack. No, no, no. They're they have a chance to actually they have a chance to just end it right there in front of a hundred people. And one of these years, someone's gonna someone's gonna make an ace and it's gonna just be pandemonium. <laughs> oh, it's that that's uh it's it's just one of the greatest scenes. And yeah, nobody's made the the ace yet, but uh, you'll have to get that one on video if they do. And I do, and I, and very lastly, I do want to give a shout out to Melissa, and Mario and Jay. And there's no, if this is the multivariable calculus of event management, and we run some simple events, some straightforward events, uh, but the punch bowl is by far requires like a PhD in organizational management, and and. And I, I like to joke when the event only had 14 people the first year or 28 the second year or whatever it was, you know, it's grown. We used to kind of just have people fill out their names on the scorecard and dot it as they as they left the clubhouse. And now it's it's so incredibly organized. And I, I want to thank Peter and everybody at the Yale course, everyone who's just helping make this super complicated event, um, you know, Ray and Vinny, the starters. Uh, everyone involved in the organization of it, it's in some ways, it's almost, we, we kind of affectionately joke that it's, it's too well organized. It's, it's, it's gone corporate. It's, it's, it's you actually know your, you know, your starting hole, like in the morning, like that was unheard yeah. of in the old days. Our, our, our event team at the Outpost Club, like you said, Mario and Melissa Belomo and Jay Freitag and, and the whole, the whole squad. I mean, they just, they, they do a tremendous job. They've built helped build the Outpost Club up to what it is and uh, and supported the vision that you and, and Will and Quentin have uh, have put together. So kudos to everyone involved. Check out the Punch Bowl. It is awesome. All right, but before we get to our podcast with Chandler Withington, I wanted to say we couldn't have this podcast without the help 
of the Silver Club Golfing Society. Our golfing society has grown leaps and bounds throughout this year, our first year in existence. We've had some great events at some world-class courses. I'm talking to people every day. We're building up this membership one by one, and we have just a fantastic group of members already on board with the Silver Club. So if you want to get on board with the Silver Club, check us out on the web at silverclubgolfingsociety.com or silverclubgs.com. We're also on social media at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter, and we're also on Facebook, too. Can't let this moment pass without thanking our sponsors of the Silver Club Golfing Society, the Dunhill brand, Club Champion, Blast Motion, Global Golf Post, Torch Eyewear, Links and Kings, and Turtleson. And remember, all the members that play in a Silver Club Golfing Society event this year will get their name put in a raffle, and you'll have the opportunity to win a trip of a lifetime over to Scotland with a friend of yours to the Dunhill Links Championship in 2020 to be a part of the whole VIP experience over there and check out some of the greatest players who ever played the game on the greatest venues of the game, St. Andrews, Kings Barnes, and Carnoustie. So very, very cool gift from our friends at Dunhill. If you want to play some of the best golf courses around the country and hit shots that matter, then the Silver Club Golfing Society is something you need to check out. All right, let's get to our guest this week, Mr. Chandler Withington, the head professional at Hazeltine National. It is a wonderful day here on the Silver Club Podcast. We have head professional at Hazeltine National Golf Club, Mr. Chandler Withington. Welcome to the Silver Club Podcast. Yeah, Steve, nice to talk to you, Ken, and thanks for having me on. Well, this is uh, the, the timing of this, really. The, we're both PGA members, and the PGA annual meeting is coming up here in early November, and we're just going to talk to one of the best PGA professionals in the game today. He's got lots of great stories, specifically about the 2016 Ryder Cup that we're going to dive into soon. But really, Chandler, talk to us a little about how you got into the game of golf. I'm always enthralled of how people get into this great game that we all love? Yeah, well, I think as, as PGA professionals, that's the question we ask a lot of people. So, I mean, I was just playing with two youngsters this morning, asking them the same question. That's usually where I start. Uh, for me, I didn't grow up in a golf family, uh, meaning that my parents didn't play or anybody in my family didn't play. Uh, I grew up playing baseball and hockey growing up in New Jersey, and we were down in Hilton Head, South Carolina in the spring of 92 on a spring break, and we were actually staying with a family on Harbortown the week of the MCI, and uh, you know the tournament's going on right in the backyard, and all my cousins from Atlanta were way into golf, and they're trying to get me to go out and watch golf, and people have to kind of remember that in 1992, it was not you know Ricky and JT and Rory, it was it was an older game then, and in my opinion, it was just you know older men who dressed poorly, who we went out and watched golf, and I think once you see live golf and in person, especially seeing somebody hit a driver out of sight, uh, that just kind of captivated me, and, and this was back in the era of persimmon woods and metal spikes, and just it had a presence like no other sport, and I just, I loved how close you could get to them. And uh, so I watched the whole weekend and uh, a younger player at the time ended up winning that weekend. And that was what made me want to pl- play. Honestly, I, I came home and started VCRing tournaments and looking for that player that won that week, uh, who was Davis Love. So that was my intro to the game and, and made me want to get into it and, you know, started from there and into caddying. Well, you maintained a, a connection, you know, as we, we discussed the Ryder Cup some, coming up soon, you have a, a pretty cool connection back with Davis with that. But uh, 
yeah, that, that's that's really neat. That's uh, you know likely where a lot of people get their starts in loving the game. You went through the ranks. You decided to do this uh, through through the college, right? Talk to us about uh, where you went to school and and what sort of things you learned on your way up. Yeah, I um, was just talking to a young man this morning who was at the Nebraska PPM about my road through it and, and what does that look like. Um, when I was going through high school, I always thought I was going to be an architect or an engineer. Those were the two things that I was so focused on and thought full steam ahead. And then I think as I started to, to understand career paths, and then as I went through high school and really started falling in love with the game of golf, I had two roads that I could consider. And I understood both of them to be, you know, not very lucrative right out of school, meaning that they weren't going to pay very well. Um, it's going to be a lot of long hours. So which one would I enjoy more? And I just, I chose my office to be a golf course. So I went to Campbell University. Somebody had introduced me to what the PGM concept was. I had gone to golf schools in Pinehurst, so I was familiar with that part of the country. And um, off I went. And I, and I was a player that I couldn't break 90 when I went to school, so I was kind of behind. I knew that I would have to pass playing ability test at some point. Um, so for four years, it was classroom and golf and classroom and golf and, and you know sometimes not the classroom and, and just trying to play the game as much as I could and catch up. And then as you start to get into the business world of it, you graduate and you start taking jobs. Um, I got very lucky, I think, in the fact that I worked for some of the people that I worked for. I didn't understand that there was a network within the golf industry of who knew who. Uh, I thought it was more of just what I did responsibility-wise, you know, how many lessons I taught or et cetera. Um, you and I got very lucky to work for the same person. Um, Greg Lecter had such a shape on my career. Uh, but when I met Greg, I didn't understand that he was a former assistant at Oakmont Country Club in Pittsburgh, <laughs> who he worked for. I didn't understand any of that. Um, so luck was a big part of it. Uh, my career timing was a big part of it. Um, no one gets to the top alone. Um, I had a lot of help uh, throughout the years, and I got some breaks and was just fortunate enough to just – get my foot in the door at the right time at some of the right places and, but then take a lot of help when I got there. A lot of people helped me get here. Yeah. That we certainly don't, don't make this uh, ascension to being a head professional at the type of club that you're at without a lot of help. Uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of neat. We, uh, you and I got to work together for a few years at, uh, really my first couple of years in the business at, uh, the 36 hall facility just outside of New York city, Canubra country club, Maybe one of the greatest training grounds for an assistant professional. Uh, extremely busy, about a thousand members. Uh, felt like about a thousand tournaments a year. Um, members coming through the golf shop was uh, was a highly highly lucrative shop with a lot of turnover and and uh, certainly learned a lot. And then you know you really you, you moved on from there. You you worked at uh, you moved up the ladder with with this networking you're talking about. Became the first assistant at Marion Golf Club, the famed Wicker Baskets of Marion. Uh, talk to us. What was it like working for not only Scott and I, one of the, another great PGA professional in our industry, but at at the venerable Marion Golf Club, where so much history was made. Ben Hogan, one iron. Marion was a special six years of my life. Um, we were just talking about it last night. My wife and I celebrated 
our 10th anniversary last night. And so I, you know, when I arrived at Marion, I was single. And uh, when I left six years later, I was married with a daughter and, and, and headed to Minnesota. So, but to the points that you made, you never knew who would show up there every day. So you really had to be on your toes. And you knew the expectations were high because so many people went to that visit to a place like that. Um, you didn't really have any days off. And I love that. I love being on the edge of my seat and just um, not knowing what tomorrow was going to bring, but just always being ready to talk about the history of the game, the history of the club, and making sure that people understood the experience that they were getting. And um, people came from all four corners of the world to play a place like that. So it was a great stage to be on for six years. Uh, we had a Walker Cup go through during my time there. I know you played in one of those, a few of them maybe. Cup, yeah, a couple. <laughs> Um, and I love the Walker Cup is the one event ever since being involved with it that I don't miss going to is in the States. Uh, I make fame in 23, but the Walker Cup was such a special event. Uh, and then I left right before the U.S. Open was coming back, which it hadn't been in, in about 30 years. So um, it was a significant six-year stretch for a course like that. And now for what they've gone through through a recent renovation, um, they treated me like family and uh, so many of them are so so close to me and stay in touch with so many of them but that was a special six years more of just i think what i left with with a family of more than just what the golf was about what's what's maybe a, a cool story that you know somebody came through marion and and uh you know I, I, like you said a lot of people uh a lot of well-known people probably came through there and and got a chance to play and not hit a mulligan on the first hole either you couldn't do that i know so yeah um <laughs> I'll tell I'll tell you um, in 2011. I think the the big controversy for Marion heading into 2013 with the U.S. Open was: Is this golf course going to hold up as a major championship? It's going to play under 7,000 yards. How's that going to work with the way that the modern game is played? So for years, people would pass through and and predict: You know, are the guys going to shoot 58 or 59? <laughs> in 2011, um, Aronimic was hosting the AT&T tournament in July, and I think it was on a Saturday night of the tournament, um, beautiful July summer night, about 8 o'clock, and I was standing right behind the first tee, and a couple things don't happen at Marion. Uh, one, you don't wear denim there, and two, you don't ride on a cart. But as I turn around, standing right behind the first tee, I notice a guy who looks just like Nick Faldo driving up in a cart in t-shirt and jeans. And he drives right around me, and he drives right down the middle of the first fairway. Um, and I think I was standing there with Bill Davis at the time, and he kind of looks at me like, I think you better go get him. So I, I drive down the first hole, and I see Nick has parked himself across the street on the middle of the fifth hole. And I pull up alongside Nick, and he looks at me and says, oh, hello there, I'm Sir Nick, how are you? I said, hi, Nick. He says, right, uh, we're just having a look around at Aronimink, and uh, we thought we'd pass over here and have a look around. And uh, my, oh, my, are they going to set the records here? And I said, which ones are you talking about, the high or the low? He goes, so if Johnny 63 is going to come to an end here, I'm afraid they're going to shoot 58 here. And then I said, how do you figure? He says, you, you know, you can't have a U.S. Open under 7,000 for these guys anymore. And I said, well, it's, it's, it's a very deceptive yardage. Um, we have two par fives. We have four very short fours. We have four to five very long fours. We have three very long par threes, and we have one very short one. So it's a very deceptive yardage. And uh, we're going to do a lot with the golf course between now and 13. Uh, fairways will be coming in. A new, you know, a couple of new fairway bunkers will be coming in. And I think by the end of it, it's it'll play as tough as everything else that has ever been played for a major. And 
I think he had one good quip. I said, you know, Gary McCord and Costas and uh, Baker Finch were over here earlier in the week. And I said, Finchie said even par will be a pretty good score. You know, so well, if you're reading Baker Finch, even par is a really good score. Oh, oh. yeah, but it was pretty funny. But I said, Nick, when was the last time you played here? He goes, oh, I've never played here. I said, you, you need to play here a few times to really understand what makes this place tough. Um, they're they're out of bounds, you know, just off just off the fairway on three or four of the holes, and it makes you feel uncomfortable with all the blind shots in a way that most places can't. And uh, Justin Rose won it one over, so it's it almost goes to show you what is harder for these players in the modern day um, that a player like Nick Fowler would just immediately assume because of the number that they're going to shoot the lights out. But Patty Harrington, I remember telling me that he goes, I'd much rather play a 500 yard par four with a pin in the middle of the green than to play this hole here at 310 with a pin tucked right. I'll make way more birdies on the 500 yard par four. And it's indicative of maybe how we're building golf courses and maybe how we defend. There's just not enough land out there and you cannot, I mean, Proof positive, Aaron Hills was just one of those type of golf courses where you can't make it long enough and, it, you know, these guys are still going to shoot as many unders they want. But uh, m- moving on, you ascended the ranks at Marion as the first assistant. Uh, it's certainly a position that most anybody who's an assistant professional, you would think that that's the, the perfect spot to jump off from to a great job. And it, it turned out to be so for you. D- discuss kind of the, the transition from... When you get that call, knowing that you are the head professional at Hazeltine and kind of what that entailed, because as an assistant and a first assistant hoping to get that that job, and I know maybe some of them are listening to our Silver Club podcast, you know what what is that feeling like? And and I mean, how do you become the the head professional at Hazeltine National? It, it's a pretty huge role. Well, it's very competitive, as I think you just alluded to. I think my mindset went from. I completed my third year at Marion, and uh, I think I was around the age of 30, and I felt like, okay, it's my time. I'm ready to leave. And I started interviewing for jobs, and I think my mindset originally was just, this is going to be pretty easy. I'll just be able to point at a job, and I'll get it. But the reality is, you know, I'm a first assistant at Marion, but I'm competing against first assistants from places like Oakmont and Shinnecock and Wingfoot and Congressional and every other great club in America, along with head pros at other great clubs. And only one guy can win. And for three years, I came up second place a lot. And um, it's an emotional process because you you interview for two months. It's almost like dating somebody for two months uh, and then getting rejected at the altar at the end. And it's it knocks a lot of guys out. And I hadn't had to deal with a lot of rejection to that point. But uh, the one thing I think I do really well is that I feel like I'm coachable. I met a guy in Philadelphia, his name was Tim Dockerty, and he helped me really understand the interview process. And he poured himself into me and, and helped, me, helped me prepare uh, to be ready for these interviews. So I can tell you that by the time I showed up to Hazeltine, I'd had a lot of, I had a lot of practice, but I was also very well prepared. And I knew a lot about the place walking in, and I just knew where I had to connect the dots. And it just, a lot of things fell into place with this one. I think there's a, there's a timing to a lot of things in life. And sometimes it's, it just comes down to fit. And it just happened that the things that they were looking for were the things that I think I do well. And I just happened to be a fit. And there were other clubs that I interviewed for and I look back on now. And if I'd gotten the job, I wouldn't have been a fit for. So I think that comes into it. And there's a timing for everyone 
And I'm so thankful that my, my number got called here because we love arriving here. We've loved that ever since we've gotten here. What, what are some of the, what were maybe the, the biggest key fit that you connected the dots with for them? Yeah, I think they were looking for somebody who had been a part of preparing for national championships, uh, which I had at Marion. Um, with the U.S. Open coming up, I'd have been a part of that preparation process. Uh, they wanted with somebody who's kind of had a, uh, a global network, which, able, which I've been able to build at Marion. I understood the stage that I was on and been able to build a lot of contacts within golf. I think I learned that they were also looking for somebody that hadn't been a head golf professional before. I was potentially going to replace somebody who has been here for 37 years. So I think they were looking for somebody else who's going to spend a long time here. And I was at a part of my career where I was looking to make a, a long-term commitment. Uh, so when you put some of those things together, I think you know public speaking has been a part of my strength. Um, I knew I was going to have to be the face of an organization and how many interviews and podcasts and things like this that you do um, were the kinds of things that I was prepared to do. What do you love most about being at Hazeltine? What, I mean, obviously you're not playing golf all year round. So, so what sort of, you know, give a plug to the, the great amenities you might have at the club and, and, and just kind of talk about some of your day-to-day interactions and responsibilities really at, at the club. Well, I think actually what you just hit on as far as amenities is Hazeltine is surprisingly young when you compare it against a lot of the other great championship clubs in this country. We're 57 years young, I would actually say. Uh, we're not century old like Marion uh, or Mon or Shinnecock or a place like that. We're 57 years old, so we haven't really arrived. We're still a club that's building and growing. And what motivates me is to really be a part of that growth process. And I think over the next nine to 10 years, we're going to really find out what kind of club we are. Um, there's competition up here, and we've got to compete. We can't just rest on the success of past championships that we've had. So I'm a part of the strategy process that we're going through right now, and that's the exciting part to me. I'd much rather be a part of a club that is still growing than arriving at a club that's really arrived and is maintaining. Um, so as we go into the offseason, it's a lot of strategy um, and kind of picking our points on where are we going to be aggressive as a club and as a membership and grow. Um, but for me, um, part of it was since I've arrived, I've been part of the Heritage Committee. And as far as I me, mean, I feel like I give so many walking tours and I really enjoy the story of who we are and how we arrived and our history. And it's, it, we've gone through some ups and downs to, to get to where we are today. It's a very unique history. Um, but that is a part of, I mean, we have so many winter projects down in our Heritage Committee room that I'm excited to, I'm not excited for winter, but I am excited to get into those. Um, but my job is more administration and planning and managing our operation uh, more than just teaching and playing, which is obviously a part of our job, but it's it's more of a managerial hat that I wear more than anything. Yeah, I mean, how how much do you teach, and how much do you do those uh, th- those those other things outside of being the the main manager? We have two great teaching professionals here. Mike Barge is going to go into the Minnesota Hall of Fame here in just a few weeks. He's been here over thirty years, wow. and then Chris has been here with us for the last seven to eight. And between the two of them, they really carry the lion's share of of our teaching program. So when I get involved in teaching, it's usually junior camp. It's clinics on a corporate level. And I enjoy those. I enjoy getting in and doing demonstrative clinics. Uh, But those two really carry it so that I can kind of put that off on on them. Uh, And then really just get into wearing the hosting hat on a daily basis. You know, who is walking in and out of our property and how can I guide their experience is really where I'm focused. That's a a great great role to have. And 
uh, you're you're certainly uh, well spoken and uh, enough to to hold that role. And you mentioned about the history of the club. What I found very interesting, I mean, the club was really built to hold major championships, and you've hosted every premier championship offered by the USGA and the PGA of America. That's just an astounding feat. Yeah, I think it's really a credit to the membership up here that that mission statement that was created in 1962, we got kind of a jump start. It helped that our founder was a former USGA president and that he had the relationships to bring some of those tournaments here early on. And what was his name? His name was Todd Heffelfinger. He was the USGA president in the late 50s and really was the one that was the visionary for bringing championship golf really back to the state of Minnesota, which it hadn't been since the Second War. And we started with the 66 Women's Open and then the 70 Men's Open. But 70 Men's Open, we really weren't ready. We were only eight years old. Took a lot of criticism from the players. But the membership stuck with it. And I think by the time we got the U.S. Open back in 91, that Payne Stewart won, that was kind of our arrival. Um, But when you join Hazeltine, uh, you really embody that mission statement. You know that we're going to hopefully host the championship here every four to five years. And then when that happens... You're going to be involved from a volunteer standpoint or a chairperson standpoint. Uh, you're not going to sit on the sidelines and watch it go by. And it's a unique membership. We don't complain about the inconveniences that come along with it, the times the course gets shut down or anything. We, we really celebrate it and we recognize what an honor it is to be hosting this range of tournaments. Yeah, well, I'll get to that list in a second. But, I mean, arguably some of the most intense competitions really in the last – 15 years or so in competitive golf have happened right at Hazeltine. I mean, you have the 2002 PGA at Rich Beam and the, the little dance he did on the 18th and then Y.E. Yang uh, holding his bag up in, in triumph, uh, holding off a, a charging Tiger Woods there at the end. And then really the, the one that, that you were a part of that we want, I really want to dive into now is the 2016 Ryder Cup. I mean, it couldn't have been more of an electric uh, stage to watch golf on television, and you got to be there right in the mix. You know, what what was it like, and what was your role in this monumental Ryder Cup? Yeah, I had reached out to, when I got here, I reached out to the other living host professionals. There's about five or six of them. Um, to kind of talk about their experiences and what to expect. And I thought I had a pretty good gauge off of that. And I think, you know, to a man, they kind of said, you know, don't get too excited about being involved with the team. They're going to keep you at an arm's length. Um, You don't get too involved with it. So so don't get your hopes up too far there. And that was my expectation going into it. And um, as we talked about earlier in this podcast, about who my hero was as a a kid, when I was at Seminole as a caddy, uh, Bob Ford knew that I never met Davis Love, so he made sure that that got arranged. And I was nervous about it because, you know, I know so many people that when they get to meet their heroes, it's not a great experience. Um, but Davis could not have been any nicer to me. Um, and to get to know him a little bit uh, before they named him captain here it helped. But um, I remember sitting in my office uh, late February of 15, and we were waiting to find out who the captain was going to be. And, and we're speculating Maybe they get Azinger out of retirement. You know, if you recall, after they lost the Ryder Cup in 14, they formed the task force. And the whole mission was, how do we put this thing back on the rails? Because Azinger was the previous only winning captain for 2008 at Valhalla. Correct. So there wasn't a a deep list of guys for them to go through. 
And I wasn't even considering Davis. I knew the history. You know, in 90 years of Ryder Cup, no losing captain for the United States has ever gotten to do it twice. So that we just kind of write that one off. Um, but I remember sitting in my office when I got the text from a friend um, that said, Tim Rosenford is reporting that they're going to name Davis Love as captain on Monday. And it was snowing outside. I mean, I, I was the only one in the clubhouse that night. I remember looking at that text for like 15 minutes with a mix of excitement. You know, this is going to happen with a mix of, oh, my God, you know, what if what if we don't win? Um, so that always sticks in the back of your mind as you go through this whole process is I'm getting to go through the with my hero. Um, how can I help him and the team prepare? And my mindset immediately switched to how can I help? And um, my family had given me the last 20 years of Ryder Cup on DVD. So for the next two months, I spent a lot of time in my basement watching old Ryder Cups and trying to pick out things from past Ryder Cups on why do we win or lose? And is there anything that I can help the team with as far as when they get here, as far as how we set up the golf course? So <laughs> there were a number of things. I won't go into to further detail on it, but there were a number of things. And then, you know, Davis hired a group called Scouts Inc. It's a group of three guys out of D.C. And together we started crunching numbers on our golf course and on players that would be well-suited to play here, pairings that be well-suited to play here, what if the weather conditions are one thing or the next? But um, it all just kind of fell into place, and, and we know the result went our way. But uh, there were some days where I'd, I'd leave here pinching myself, am I really a part of this? And there were some days where I felt like I was meant to be here at this time. Um, it, it really felt like everything in my life was going to collide that week. And, um, again, the nervousness of if it doesn't go great, but – it went great, and uh, you know, I find myself at Davis Love's Hall of Fame induction ceremony a year later um, because it went the way that it did. So it it was a dream. It was an absolute dream. That's that's spectacular. Uh, you you've got to share one nugget here or there of your involvement. I, we'd we'd love to just hear something, you know, like you know, you you ran into Tiger in the bathroom or you did whatever. I don't know. <laughs> well, there's so many things to talk about with the Ryder Cup. Um, things that I think that just kind of lined up throughout that week. I think one thing that was pretty magical um, that a lot of people forget about, you know, when you think back to the 2016 Ryder Cup is that we lost Arnold Palmer on that Sunday night. Um, I was riding around with my family and my wife was dropping me off um, right outside the, the golf shop. And I was trying to get to a meeting with all the chairpersons. This was Sunday night before Ryder Cup week started. And uh, Davis was sitting on the wall right outside the golf shop. So I pulled up right outside and I got out of the van. I knew what he was doing. He was calling the players that weren't making the team. Um, so I got dropped off and I sat there next to him as he made the calls for the last two players. And then we came inside and he was going to announce that he was going to pick Ryan Moore as the last pick. And he was going to do that on halftime of the Sunday night football game. So we had a backdrop all set up right outside the locker room. And I went into the uh, the ballroom and uh, the PGA Brass and Pete Bakwa and Derek Sprague were up there greeting the crowd and I was waiting to watch the announcement with the rest of them and as I was standing in the back of the room a member puts his phone right in front of my face and it's a tweet that says golfing legend Arnold Palmer has just passed away at the age of 87 you know and it's like we're getting ready to start this big week and probably the biggest name that's living in this game has just passed away so Julius Mason kind of caught me in the in the hallway outside and live from the PGA or sorry, sorry, rather live from the Ryder Cup. Rich Lerner was going to come in and they're going to start the show in about 30 minutes. 
And that all was happening. And Davis ended up not making the announcement. One was too emotional. Um, two, you know, the news was breaking. And uh, Rich Lerner ran a, a five-hour show that night, which was awesome. He had this uh, purple binder that said Pennzoil on it. And, it, you know, they were prepared for Arnold's passing. It just so happened to be that night. And he ran a show. It was just so impressive. And I sat on the set and watched Mark Roth and uh, uh, I think it was Frank Novello and I think maybe uh, Brandel was a part of it. Uh, awesome show. And we came in that next morning and, and covered the life of Arnold Palmer for two days. And the Palmer, family, the Palmer family sent up Arnold's bag from when he was captain in 1975 at Latrobe to sit on the first tee for that Friday morning. You know, the, both teams were honoring Arnold. But uh, that bag sat up there for the first matches. And America goes out and sweeps a session. Uh, for the first time since Arnold was captain in 75. And wow. That was all a pretty good feeling that it was going to go our way that week. I mean, it got tight going into Saturday morning and then, uh, sorry, Saturday night and then into Sunday morning. But um, I feel like Arnold kind of washed over us on that one. And, uh, you know, the whole golfing world got to go celebrate his life two days later once it all ended. So that was a, a great start to the week. Um, if there was ever a time for a guy like that to go, it happened at the right time. And uh, it's a great part of my memory for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting interesting point to that whole week, and I'm sure it gave uh, many players a lot of motivation as well. And and uh, knowing that that Arnold was in a you know was in a better place now, and uh, but yeah, just just yeah, spectacular, obviously. Then the uh, you know the celebration and and the, the U.S. team wins, and and you get the chance to to potentially do that again in 2028. You guys uh, at Hazeltine are slated to host the Ryder Cup that year. And you've got a few other ones in between that as well. The, two, the 24 U.S. Amateur, uh, and next year you're hosting the U.S. Junior Amateur as well. So this is a really busy time outside of your, your day-to-day responsibilities at Hazeltine. Well, yeah, it almost feels like, in the, in the time that I've been here, it feels like preparing for, for these championships is a part of our daily responsibilities. Um, from the time that I was that I arrived here, we've been preparing for Ryder Cup. So as soon as that was done, we prepared for the women's PGA, which was just here this last summer, and into the junior boys and, and amateur. And it's it is a great part of, of the job. It's we can't lose sight of the members in, in the midst of all of this. But uh, I love it. I'm excited for these families to get up here next summer. We know how impactful it is. I'm, I'm sure you probably played in some junior the in the yeah. junior amateurs. My prediction is that I think between the junior boys in 2020 and the USA Amateur 24, that you'll see three players between those two events that will return here in 2028. In 2006, Ricky Fowler and Dustin Johnson played here, and then 10 years later, we're back for a Ryder Cup. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a chance that there will be one player who plays in the junior amateur, plays in the US Amateur, and then plays here in the Ryder Cup. I think you look at how fast these players are progressing through amateur ranks. I mean, Justin Thomas and Bryson DeChambeau, you know, by the time they turn professional, Jordan Spieth is another one. To the time they play in their first Ryder Cup is a two to three year span. So we don't know who it's going to be, but we're excited to see who it's going to be. And it'll be a great path right back up to 2028 again. And um, I'm just curious to see where, where the Ryder Cup in the game of golf is. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure it will look dramatically different than when it was here in 2016. 
I'm sure it might. Uh, before we let you go, your role at, at Hazeltine really is a uh, in the in the Minnesota region of the PGA of America. You've you've certainly made a name for yourself in the region as well as nationally. Uh, you even got to be a starter this year at the 3M Open over at the TPC course of the Twin Cities that Matt Wolf was victorious in. And uh, what what was that like? Uh, you know, being being a part of that event as well. Well, I think you know PGA Tour golf. As we mentioned earlier in this podcast, it triggered my interest in this game. And as I look around, like in the gallery, just thinking about how many kids were watching this and wanting to, to want to learn to go out and play golf right after seeing it. So whether that's a Ryder Cup or the Women's PGA, which was here, Minnesota fans are getting pretty spoiled between all the events that are happening here. A Ryder Cup's going to be six hours away if they want to drive over to Wisconsin in 2020. Right. Um, events and women's events and Ryder Cups and now the PGA Tour is going to be here now for about the next six to seven years I think if you want to go see great live golf you've got it right here in our backyard so um, I was excited for 3M and the people over there at TPC Twin Cities to get going with it I'm obviously excited to get up there and be a part of it just from announcing on the first tee there's an electricity to all this and Matt Wolf was already celebrating before that putt went in the hole on the 72nd hole they got a sense to see more great moments in golf, and there's hopefully more coming. Also, you have you're mentoring. Let's just put your PGA of America hat and your head professional hat on just for one second before we go. You mentor a lot of assistant professionals. How, how big is your staff, and what, what's maybe one of the most important lessons that anybody coming up can learn if they want to become a top PGA professional in the industry? Well, yeah, so my staff is, um, I have three assistant golf professionals. One stays here full-time, and then two go away seasonally. And they're just about getting getting ready to hit the road themselves. Um, so obviously they're a part of it. But I want to play a part in not just mentoring my own staff, but just here within the Minnesota PGA. So I started getting involved with the education committee, and that's something that I enjoy. I feel like I'm still a student myself, and I'm trying to share a love of learning and never kind of getting comfortable with where you are uh, within our section. But as far as like those those lessons that I've learned and as far as how I get here, I think, one, you never know who you're going to meet tomorrow who's going to have an impact in your future. Um, two people that passed me for promotions along the way, two people that bypassed me were two people that turned around and, and created opportunities for me. So you never know where the help is going to come from. So keep an open mind. The person sitting next to you in your PGA seminar, somebody who you're sitting next to in the caddy yard, somebody that you maybe played with in a tournament, you, you just don't know how they're going to turn around and have a say in your future. So treat everyone as though they were going to be your future employer. Treat everyone as though they're going to be your future employer. You never know who's going to get called and, and they have to talk about you. But if you treated everyone as though they're important and you can put your head down on the pillow at night and not have a worry about who's going to call about you, you're in a good place. Um, it's not just the people on your resume that, that they're going to call. They're probably all the people from your deepest, darkest reaches of your past, you know, for information on you. And if you've done a good job with that, you'll be just fine. But um, there is a lot of luck and timing. And I think you just need to understand about who you surround yourself with um, and think about the moves that you make in your career. I would say in our industry, it's probably more important about who you work for than what you've done. And I think that's where I think I've been lucky in my career. I've gotten to watch a lot of great people. And the opportunity that I was given here at Hazeltine, the expectation is that I would take all those things that I've seen and learned and bring them here and apply them as we grow. Again, very lucky to be here and timing worked out. And 
I'm here and it's, it's, I'm not sitting comfortably. I, there's an opportunity every day to make this better. And that's what gets me out of bed. That's certainly a great perspective. Uh, every day is essentially an interview, right? Every day you, you, you show up and and you never know who's watching and who's who's going to be your next connection in the game. Well, look, we at the Silver Club Golfing Society and the Silver Club Podcast are extremely grateful to be connected with you, Chandler Withington. And we are now connected to the game even greater because you were on our podcast. And I really appreciate your time. Likewise, keep up the great work. I enjoy listening to you guys. Uh, tell Colin I said hello, and I'm sure I'll pass across again very soon. 